God's Word. We're in Romans chapter 8. For those of you newer to to the Christian faith, that's in the back of the Bible after Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, all those big historical books in the New Testament. You'll find the book of Romans. We're starting in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul's been talking to the Romans about life in the Spirit, even life as children of God. Listen to what he says about life and how it sometimes can involve suffering. In verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, uh, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, as one of those scary phone calls you don't want to get as a parent. A few weeks back, I was driving to a morning meeting in Charlotte when I got a call from my son's school. They told me Mitchell had been in an accident at the school. They assured me he was okay, but you know, when a parent hears something like that, our head's usually spinning in some way. (laughs) Then they explained to me that uh, Mitch had been horsing around with a friend and in between school periods and Mitch started running away from his friend. His friend picked up a little rod, the kind you put like a vinyl sign on, He picked it up and threw it at Mitchell, and just as he threw it, Mitchell slipped and fell on the rod in such a way that the rod went straight and punctured his calf four inches uh, deep. Now, you know, as, as this person told me this, I was having visions immediately of my son laying on the ground, bleeding all over the place, writhing in pain, but the administrator who told me this, who happened to be our own Amy Yermak, handled it really well, and she assured me that Mitchell was so okay that he was laying on the ground joking with everybody. And when she said he was joking with everybody, my head like couldn't get around that. What, he's laying on the ground with a thing in his leg and he's joking with kids? How does that work? So I rushed to the emergency room with my head still spinning. And when I walked into the emergency room where Mitchell was laying, I saw a strange sight. Mitch had this rod sticking out of his leg, and he was laughing and cutting up at the same time. 
when I walked in the room, it got even stranger. The first words out of his mouth were, Dad, you have to take a picture of this so I can put it on Instagram. Now my head was spinning even more. (laughs) Because I'm staring at this kid with a rod in his leg, and he's wanting me to take a picture for Instagram. While I saw all this, it was really strange to me. A, a, a question popped up in my head. Is this how he handles pain? Today in Romans 8, we're going to talk about the reality of suffering. And we're going to learn about how God intends us to handle, yes, even the pain we encounter in life. Indeed, that's our burning question today is... How should we handle the pain of life when it comes our way in different forms? Paul's been talking about uh, some really amazing stuff throughout chapter 8. He's been talking about what it means to live uh, a life in the Spirit while following Christ. And last week he told us two really great truths that we are children of God and the Holy Spirit even affirms that in our hearts. But also we are heirs, like we have a future inheritance waiting for us as Christians, as those who trust in Christ alone. In verses 16 and 17, he tells us these amazing truths. And he tell us, tells us this as really good news. News that gives us hope about where what awaits us and what's going on. But then in our text, Paul does a very strange thing. He takes a strange twist in verse 17. He says this to the, the, um, to the uh, Romans, and, it, and you're thinking, what is he doing? Look at verse 17. If you're children, then you're also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then in the next verse, he starts talking about suffering even more. I mean, after he has told us these soaring truths about who we are as children of God through Christ, and then what we have as an inheritance awaiting us, he then brings up suffering. And you go, Paul, you're pooping our party. Why are you talking about suffering? We're talking about these magnificent truths of what awaits us. In our future. We have to ask, what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul not only says, look, think about how you're children of God through Christ, trusting in him alone, and how you have a future. But I want you to wrestle with that in light of the suffering of this life. In light of the hardship that we can go through. In fact, Paul is talking about the very thing that he had encountered following Christ in his life. That there was trouble in his life. There was hardship. In fact, anyone who follows Christ knows that Jesus even predicted this for us when he said in Mark chapter 8, If any man will come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. In other words... Before you get a crown of glory in this life, you must first bear a cross. The struggle of following Jesus in his way, even in his suffering, suffering with him. The rhythm of the Christian life, you see, is this. As we've seen throughout these chapters of Romans, it's death and resurrection. 
It's the cross before the crown. And the real issue around Christianity is that many of those who are Christians had bought into the belief that if I just become a Christian, then I won't have problems in life. Things will get better. Well, to be sure, Jesus saves us. And he saves us from many of our problems in this life and supremely from our own sin. But here's the thing. It's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said it this way. uh, The problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting. The problem with Christianity is that it's never been tried. People want to bail out. When it gets hard to follow Jesus. And the Romans themselves had understood what Paul was talking about when he brought up this suffering thing. The Romans, you see, had tasted the the verbal jabs of friends mocking them for being Christians. Some of the Romans didn't get jobs because they were Christians. Some were ostracized. And you know that the early church, they were mischaracterized as cannibals. Yeah, Christians were called cannibals. You know why? Because every, when they would take the Lord's Supper, they would eat the body and drink the blood of Christ symbolically. A few of these Christians knew what suffering meant in the extreme, most extreme way, and that was they were martyred for their faith. And the question was coming up among these Christians. Okay, Paul, you say that we are children of God. Well, I don't feel like I'm being treated like a child right now in all my suffering. And that brings up the question, how do believers handle stuff like suffering when we are supposed to be children of God? Well, let's get clear on what suffering means first before we talk about it. And the reason why I want to be clear about this is too often when we talk about suffering, we mean very different things. Too often, we think we have it really bad and we don't. For example, if your cell phone doesn't work for a day or is broken for a few days, that's not suffering. However, on the other side of this, sometimes we want to minimize things that are happening that are actually truly suffering experiences for Christ in our families, in our workplaces, our communities, yes, even around the world. So, here's a way to understand suffering in Christ. You need some categories. Categories like moderate suffering, severe suffering even very severe suffering. And of course, these are all variations of the different kinds of suffering we can go through. Suffering can come in verbal forms or psychological forms, even physical forms. And it will usually and must always be because of Christ and for his sake, even for the sake of the gospel or even doing good in Jesus' name, this suffering comes our way. Indeed, this is, uh, I'll give you some examples of what suffering looks like. A very severe physical suffering would be, in the worst cases in our world, in some countries in our world, beatings, even martyrdom, for Christ's sake. Now, we don't go through that here in America. We enjoy some amazing freedoms 
in terms of our religion. However, this past week, I have to tell you that in some parts of the world where the church is thriving, like China, I met this past week with a pastor who planted a church in China. And he left China in large part because of severe psychological um, suffering. The government was following him everywhere he went. They were doing everything to harass him without actually laying a hand on him. I would say that we who are in America experience usually moderate suffering, verbal, even psychological suffering for Christ. And that shows up um, in things like when you try and follow Christ as a teenager in your school, and you try and do the right thing, but you get these little verbal jabs from your friend who says, man, come on, why don't you lighten up? It happens as well in uh, American culture, in the media, where when we take a stand on things like homosexuality, what we really believe about that, loving the homosexual, but disagreeing heartily with their lifestyle, it is the media who now increasingly says, oh man, these people are crazy. Sticks in the mud. They live in the past. There's that moderate psychological thing of being diminished that we don't realize is going on sometimes. What Paul wants to do is for us to realize that suffering is real for the Christian. When you follow Christ, it takes different forms. But he also wants us to get to the larger question of how do you handle it when you get pushback for following Jesus? How do you handle it? Well, let me give you some illustrations of what this looks like. Paul calls us to make a comparison by faith on how we should handle our, our suffering in life. Look at verse uh, 20, 20 uh, excuse me, 18 in our text. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is telling us why we should endure suffering as children of God. Because we need to stop and consider and compare what awaits us with what we're going through at this time. You see, children can always look forward to when the father, their big brother Christ, will redeem them in the future. They will come to their rescue. Slaves will stick in the here and now and try and do everything they can to get out from under the pain. Children dwell on the end, in other words, where the Father will come and send His Christ to finally redeem. Slaves deal with just the here and now and will do anything it takes to feel better. That brings us to another question. What is the glory to be revealed to us in Christ? What is he talking about for the children of God? Well, here's what we believe. One day Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, he will both eradicate all the evil and sin that is in our world, even our universe. And he will establish his kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. A new world. A renewed world where he will be present with us. That is the great promise of scripture from beginning to end. Let me put it this way. Heaven 
is a place. And you know why it's a place? Because Jesus Christ was resurrected in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And where he is in the flesh, ascended into heaven, must be a physical place. Because he is a physical being. In this new heavens and new earth, you will taste a soul-shattering delights. The things you see with your eyes will pop. You think colors are bright now? They will pop in unbelievable ways, just like a great Van Gogh painting. You think the things you hear in this world, maybe you go through for a walk and you hear the birds singing, is beautiful. Wait till you hear the beauties and the harmony of a new heavens and a new earth with God. You think the things you taste in this world are glorious, both experientially and even physically to the taste. But wait till you get to heaven. There the taste will be so glorious, it'll make Godiva chocolate look like a cheap imitation. Do you realize that in heaven you will get a resurrected body? You will have a new, renewed body to live in eternity with God physically. That means there will be no more aches and pains, no more sickness to death. Your body will be renewed by the power of Jesus when he returns so you can live forever. In heaven, we will be treated with dignity. Dignity as children of the king. And not only that, we treat each other with dignity. Power will be different and, and handled differently in heaven. In heaven, there is a hierarchy. God is above all. But this hierarchy is very different. It's turned upside down. Where the greatest beings serve the lesser beings. In heaven, the higher you go, the more humble you are. Christ is the highest because he is the humblest. He is the one who, as Lord of all, goes to the cross, not for friends, but for enemies. Indeed, our chief blessing in heaven is God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who interact with each other with such intensity in heaven that it reaches out to beyond us in community to include us in the family. And for those of you who think heaven will be boring, <laughs> here's what I'd tell you. You think a concert with one of your favorite bands is awesome and energetic? You think kind of seeing your favorite football team win a game, which has been a long time coming for NC State fans like me, is exciting? I want you to know God is the source of joy. And he is infinite. So you know how what it's like when you're around someone who you're just drawn to them. You're like, I really like this person. I like to be around them. They just give me joy. And I laugh with them. And I enjoy them. Well, multiply that times infinity with God. We will be drawn to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Enjoying Christ in such a way that we want to know him more. 
and you think, well, you know, I'll get to know him after a mm, thousand years, right? Oh, no, uh-uh. <laughs> no. You can never exhaust knowing an infinite God. We keep being drawn to him and he to us. And we do all of this together. So the best concert or best game you could ever see, you would enjoy Christ together. In fact, next time you go to something you really enjoy with other people, think this is just a taste of what heaven's going to be like, where we are focused on the most joy-producing being in all the universe, Christ. That's what we'll be doing with him. The beauty of all that, that we do it together, is that each one of us brings, as Jonathan Edwards says, a note And as we play our notes of joy together in Christ, it becomes a concert of God's glory. Now compare all of I've just said. Our destination in Christ, our inheritance in God himself and his new heavens and new earth with what you're struggling with right now. Don't you think it would be worth the wait Don't you think it would be worth even the pain? Christ calls us to enjoy this life. And some might say, well, how do I get this heaven? What do I do to gain this heaven? And the answer is very simple. For those who don't know Christ, trust in him alone for your salvation. Trust in the resurrected Christ who is alive and well at the right hand of God the Father in heaven right now that will come down finally in the future when he returns. Trust in him. What if you're a Christian who has been walking with Christ for year for years, but your life is like all up in your face right now and it's hard to even see beyond yourself. Listen to Paul in Colossians when he says, set your mind on things above. Look to the future while you live in the present. Paul tells us that the pains of this life are nothing compared to what's coming. But Paul gives us incentive on looking to our future in Christ, in the new heavens and the new earth. And he tells us why we should do that in verses 19 through 21. Look at what it says here. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see what Paul does here? He personifies creation itself by telling us that creation waits. Creation was subjected and creation groans, as it says in verse 22. Why does he talk about creation like this in a kind of almost like creation's a human being? Well, look at this slide of a biblical view of history. We believe as Christians that God created the world in a point in time. And that he, when he created the world, he created it very good with man over all of creation, ruling in his name, 
But here's the thing. We know also that beginning with Adam and Eve, man fell. And when man fell, all of creation was corrupted and polluted with man in his soul. And so creation does not work the way it's supposed to be. It is not the way it's supposed to be in God's plan. The great hope of the gospel is that at one point in time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world and he came into the world to start a new kingdom that started in our hearts. That his renewal of the world would begin with you and me. And we live in that time between Christ's first and second coming, that time in between. And yet, while we are changed as Christians with the Holy Spirit living in us, with a new life and a new future as children of God, the great struggle is that our world is still broken. The world still struggles with futility. Did you see that word in our text there in verse 20? You know what that word is? That's the word that shows up in the Greek Old Testament in Ecclesiastes over and over again. You remember what Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Futility, futility, all is futility. No matter what Solomon, as Coeleth would do in his life, in Ecclesiastes he reflects on how all of it breaks down. Futility is our companion in this world and in creation. Remember God told Adam after the fall, when you labor in your work, it will be filled with thorns and thistles. Futility. Now men, listen to me. This explains why when we try to make things work in our marriage, when we try to make things work in our jobs and our careers, and things come off the tracks, if you will, we now have an explanation. God Design the world with futility so that in some ways we would never quite find our full fulfillment in this world, but would only find it in him. You see, futility is the thing that convinces us we need Christ in everything. We need a resurrected Christ in how we live in our daily lives. We need Christ to save us in our marriages in our parenting, in the futility we face in our careers, we need Him. That's what futility drives us to, is to needing God more and stopping our regular dependence on self. After all, what is Americans' favorite verse in the Bible? God helps those who help themselves. Which isn't in the Bible, by the way. God puts futility and designs it into our world and in our lives so we are forced to reckon with Him in new ways in our rhythms of life. For those of you who love science and love creation, God has even designed something called the second law of thermodynamics in the rhythms of what we do. Everything moves towards chaos. Everything moves towards disorder. Everything breaks, even our bodies in the end. In this scheme, Christ came in the world 
And he came into the world to redeem us first, but ultimately to redeem the whole physical universe. Everything you see. He came to renew us in the resurrection and an entire physical world in the resurrection. In fact, that's how it works. Our text says that creation longs for the revealing of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. You know what that means? When we are resurrected, then the whole world can be set in order the way it's supposed to be because it follows our lead. Here, Christ is the center of attention and how he takes broken things and makes them new. Here is the application for us today around this very thing. The application is this. We, above all people in the world as Christians, should care about the environment without giving in to the idolatry of environmentalism. We are the ones who steward creation with a longing hope that all of our labors and work, though done with futility, will continue, if done by faith, into the next part of eternity. We believe that Jesus comes back saying, Behold, I make all things new, even creation itself. Creation longs for that day when Jesus comes back and all things are made new. Now, some of you at this point are saying, wow, Dean, you've been talking in this pie in the sky, uh, all kinds of things, and that sounds real nice, but we live in a real world in the in-between of Christ's first and second coming, and you yourself said it, it's hard sometimes. How should we live then in that in-between time? We'll look at verse 22 and 23 with me. It says this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you know how to handle when things are painful in this life as a Christian? Do you get triumphalistic like, Jesus Lord! Praise the Lord! I ran into a guy who was saying that yesterday, and I wanted to say, don't you hurt, man? Because when I read the Psalms, they echo the pain of life all over the place. You want to know how to respond in the in-between time? You groan. Creation itself groans. It's longing for that day when Jesus comes back and changes everything. It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, I can definitely say... I have never been through that. I've been through it with my wife. Yes, even when our first child was born, when the epidural was too late. If you haven't had an epidural and you've had a baby, you know what Paul's talking about right here. It is pain on a level that is excruciating. But it is a groaning that has hope. A groaning that endures because something wonderful is coming. And that, my friends, is how we as Christians see the brokenness of our world around us. Is we groan. We lament. 
We lament of all people when a, when a couple is suffering from a miscarriage. We lament of all people from the cruelty of men towards one another in abuse, even genocide. We lament when there is a catastrophic typhoon that hits a nation like the Philippines. We cry over the coarseness and brokenness of our pop culture. We don't condemn Miley Cyrus. We cry over her. We weep over broken marriages. And we weep over the death of a loved one because all of these things are not the way it's supposed to be. But that's not the end of the story. Something's coming. Something will change. Christ will come back. And he will redeem our bodies so that we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. And Paul's not saying we aren't already adopted if we've received Christ by faith. What he's saying is our adoption will be completed with that new body that even reflects the glory of Christ's resurrected body. This is our hope as Christians. And Paul says as much in verse 24 of our text. Look at that in verse 24, 25. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see... We wait for it with patience. You know what he's saying here? He's saying we hope for that which we do not have right now. When you hope, you are automatically in a waiting mode. And more specifically, you wait on the Lord. Remember what hoping in the Lord looks like. This is our running illustration. Hoping in the Lord is where we follow Christ on a trail in the mountains, if you will. And as we follow him along this trail, sometimes we get to enjoy walking through the meadows and see the beauty of what God has done in our lives and salvation. Sometimes we see the majesty of the grand trees and the forest. And as we're walking and following him, we see all around us by faith the things that God has done to redeem us and to save us. But sometimes as we're walking with him, a fog bank rolls in. And as the fog bank rolls in, it gets harder to see Christ. You can barely see a few feet in front of you. It's thick. You notice the trail below you actually gets narrower. The cliffs are steeper on the side. And as you're walking and you can barely see Jesus, if you can see him at all, you're following on this trail and you start to get nervous. It gets a little scary. And as you're following him, he says, come on, come this way as well. And this way is even tougher. You have to climb. And it's a difficult climb. It takes a lot out of you. And you start to think, you know, if I could find another easier trail, oh, that would be so much better. Surely there must be a shortcut to our destination. But Jesus says, no, no. I know you can't see me through the cloud right now, but follow me. Follow me. And as you're following, you are learning something. Hope. Hope. 
You see, when you walk into the cloud bank with Jesus, that's faith. But when you stay in the cloud bank and can't see the end very clearly because the suffering seems right up in your face, that's hope. Because you're following Christ where he tells you to go. For a long time, I've been thinking about this issue of hope. And our text has little clues that teach us how to hope in it that I want to tell you today. What does it mean to hope? How do we handle the pain with hope? Are you ready? My encouragement is don't waste the pain. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ with hope. Hope in where you're going with him. And hope with who you're with. What does that look like? Number one, lament the truth. If you want to learn to hope, you got to come clean. Ouch, this world hurts. Ouch, I'm a broken person. Lord, how have I hurt you and your people? Ouch, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Second truth, remember God's salvation and his promise in the word of God. You go to the Word of God and you remember God has saved and He will save. In fact, the key to going to hope is to actually look backwards and look at what God has done in your life personally as well as in history itself from right here in the Word. And it will remind you that God has saved you and He is saving you. And He will continue to save you. Third, seek the Lord in prayer. You know what I think for me lately, the last few months has been like? God said, you know, you aren't praying very much, Dean. You're kind of dependent on yourself. You're an activist by nature. Let's turn up the heat and change everything. Man, I'm praying like crazy. I feel my weakness. I feel my limited nature as a leader. I feel how I am not enough. And I want him Way more. Next up. Wait on the Lord with patience and perseverance. Oh, patience. You know, that's the thing you ask for from God. And what does he give you? Tribulation. God is in the business of teaching him how to be like him. So you're thinking, Lord, help me to love my wife in marriage. Lord, help me to love my husband. Woo, boy, it's hard to love my husband. I can hear you women now. You know what he's going to do? Turn up the heat. Not out of meanness. But if you want to learn how to love with patience of God, you've got to learn how to love in hardship. Not ease. Anybody can love in ease. Fifth. This brings us to the larger thing. When you're in the crucible of pain and hardship and suffering, (laughs) you know what God will do? He will reveal you. He will reveal your stuff, your junk, your brokenness and sin. And he'll reveal you in such a way that he wants you to change and grow in character. You see, God uses suffering constructively, redemptively, So that we become new people. Think of Peter. When he first started following Jesus. And well after he started following Jesus. Think of how many times he messed up. In the pain 
And in the hard moment, he was revealed, but God grew him. Christ grew him. Let's go to the next one. When you're in pain, call on the Holy Spirit. Call on him as your comforter. You know what I go to when I want comfort? Facts. Sports trivia. NC State football and basketball, which is not much to celebrate these days. Go to the Holy Spirit for your comfort. Ask him to come in your life and give you a taste of heaven now in his presence. Finally, resolve to worship with God's people. What do I mean by that? If you ever read the Psalms that David wrote under serious suffering and duress while he's being hunted down by a king of a nation, you know what he regularly says? God, it hurts. Ouch, ouch, please save me, deliver me. And then he says, I will worship you. He resolves to say, I will. In the future, when you save me, I will worship you. He doesn't say, if you save me, I'll worship you. He says, when. And that's the kind of joy that fills our hearts when we start to plan on the day. Yeah, when I get saved by him yet again in this circumstance, I'm going to give him praise. I'm going to give him praise. That's hope. These are components of real business of hoping when you're in pain. Don't waste the pain. Don't waste the pain. Hope in the Lord. Because he has a future for you. In conclusion. Many of you have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Many of you have read the books. Here's one of them right here. This is the last book called The Last Battle. Many of you have seen the movies of the Chronicles of Narnia with, with Aslan the Lion, of course, being the savior, the figure of Christ. With these kids who followed Aslan and were interacted with him with many adventures. But have you ever read the last book? Have you ever read the last page of the last book of the story of Narnia? Let me read that for you. Here's the setting. The, all the grand adventures are coming to an end with Lucy and Peter and Edward and all of the kids with Aslan. And Aslan says to the children the following, You do not look so happy as I mean you to be. And Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan. And you have sent us back into our world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. Aslan said, there was a real railway accident. Your father and mother and all you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holiday has begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page of a book. 
Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has ever read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. May God give us a living hope of a life to come, a life where we don't waste the pain, a life which is filled with hope in a resurrected Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you today as a people longing for hope. We live in a world of suffering, of pain, and we all are in various stages of that, various tastes of that, but we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would meet us as your children. You would meet us, and even as we come to the table today, we'd be assured of your greatness, of all that you've accomplished. Open our hearts, Lord, even now, to sup with you, to enjoy you. Holy Spirit, come and dwell among us, that we might be reminded that we are children with a future, a hope, an inheritance in Christ. It's through him we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing this prayer about God's mercy that we might be ready, eager, and grown for the kingdom to come. Jesus, I forgot the words that you have spoken. Promises that burn within my heart have now grown dim. With a doubting heart, I follow the paths of earthly wisdom. Forgive me for my unbelief and heal the fire again. Lord, have mercy. Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy on me, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy on me. an altar where I worship things of man and I have taken journeys that have drawn me far from you but now I am returning to your mercies ever flowing pardon my transgressions help me love you to know you and I 
Sometimes we doubt that God's very real. And so we as Christians, even as children of God, need to remind each other what is true. What is really true 